Yes, not for Thessalonians as we've been in for several weeks. I mentioned earlier that the elders have asked that I speak to you this morning on the qualifications for officers since we're in the middle of the officer nomination period. They thought it would be wise to spend some time in this sermon unpacking the uh, specific qualities of leaders to be ordained in Christ's church. Earlier, Marty read to you from the Titus chapter 1 passage. I'll read to you from the other New Testament passage that details these qualities. It is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, a husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, nor violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. As I just mentioned, we're stepping out of 1 Thessalonians, but not really that much. It's not hard to imagine that at some point after Paul planted the church, he sent a church representative to Thessalonica to do what happened with Titus in Crete. So if you look at page 5 of the bulletin Marty read earlier, this is why Paul wrote to Titus, I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then he goes on and lists the qualities necessary and the character for that person. So these two passages represent for us the two main places we look in the New Testament for the qualifications of men to be both deacon and elder. Two offices of leadership in our form of government, deacons from the word servant and elder. And actually, in the Titus text, there are two words for the same office. The word elder is praise buteros, from which we get Presbyterian. And that referred to his chronological qualification. He was older. The word means older. And another word is used in that text. The Greek is episkopos. It's translated overseer in your Bibles. And that literally means to look at closely. And this alluded to the role or the function of closely looking at the matters of the church leadership as well as looking closely at souls as shepherd. 
So we have elders and overseers, and we have deacons governing the church. Here's what I want to do in the sermon, and the outline's pretty clear. I want to spend a lot of time looking at what I believe are assumptions implicit in these qualifications that are given. And then we'll look at the qualifications as a whole at the end. Questions are raised about these qualifications. I'm not going to answer in this sermon. We can talk about that one-on-one. Different issues come up among interpreters. I'm going to give you a bit more sort of of an overview as best as possible. So first, there are a number of assumptions, I believe, that are implicit in these two texts of qualifications for church officer. And I'm, I'm lumping elder and deacon together. The qualifications virtually overlap. Their functions are different, but the character qualifications are, are virtually the same. I'm treating them that way. Here's the first assumption. We should all desire the character being described here, male or female, young or old. We should all desire it. Notice how Paul begins The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Don't forget the context in which Paul is writing. Churches were beginning to be persecuted. If you aspire to be a leader in Christ's church, you would be one of the first targets of persecution. And therefore, it was a noble thing to say, I am willing to risk all for the sake of Jesus' church as a leader. So why does Paul say it's a good thing to desire to be an overseer, a a shepherd, a caretaker of the souls of the church? Why does he say that's a good thing? Elders shepherd Jesus' sheep. Can you think of anything more precious to do on earth than caring for the sheep of the Lord Jesus? I can't. All of our occupations are very important. To be be entrusted with the spiritual care of the very sheep of Jesus, that's a good thing. Raises this question in my mind. Do some people desire this good office for bad reasons? Probably those who seek it out of pride. They want prominence. They want control. They want people to like them because they become an elder or deacon. Those are decidedly bad reasons. Likewise, Do some people not desire this good thing for good reasons? Yes. Some of you might say, I believe wholeheartedly that the office of overseer or deacon is a good thing. I don't personally have an inclination to serving in that office. I don't believe God has gifted me for those offices. I may not have time for that office. So that's not desiring it for a good reason. In my ministerial career, spanning at least three decades, I've known people who love Presbyterian churches and our doctrine, our Bible preaching, but they they realize they can't be officers because they don't fully assent to our doctrinal standards or some of the particulars of our form of government. But they still can serve in the church and are welcome. Notice in the new member vows, there was nothing 
explicitly asking you that you're going to assent to every jot and tittle of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Our doctrinal sins, your officers do, I do, David does, Michael does, for a good reason. So implicit, beloved, in this is who would not want the qualities listed here, whether you're a male or a female? Let me put it to you. Maybe you, consider, you don't consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus. You're not sure where you stand about the Bible. But as you look at the qualities that are listed here, do you want to go to work with people that bear these qualities? Would you like them to be your neighbor? Would you like people with these qualities to be caring for your children? Your spouse in need? I, th- I think so. We should all desire these. And some of you are thinking, well, Mike, Paul is setting the bar awfully high. Is he? Yes. For the same reason. You want the bar set high for your surgeon. Let's see, I'm going to have open heart surgery. Uh, how good are you at surgery? You know, I got D's and F's in, in, in med school, but I'll give it a shot. How good are you in surgery? I'm the best in the world. Who do you want operating on your heart? Do you want your airplane pilots at 30,000 feet imminently qualified to fly the jet? The people that handle your food at a restaurant imminently qualified to do so? Or just want substandard? See my point? Your very life's at stake. How much more stewards of your soul? That's one of the first assumptions in the text. Here's the second one. This is not a popularity contest. Now, to be sure, officers in the New Testament were elected by popular election. Acts chapter 6, there was a problem with a certain group of people not getting food ministry. The, the apostles got together, they formed a plan, and they said to the congregation, about 5,000 people strong at this point, you select from among yourselves seven men that we may put in charge of this task. They were given the congregation the power to elect those men. And then if you go further along in the book of Acts, in Acts 14, verse 23, uh, Paul says, he says, when they appointed Elders for them in every church. See, each church needs to be governed by elders. And it says when they appointed elders from them in every church, the word appoint there literally means in Greek to show by the raising of a hand. What is that, beloved? Whose hands are being raised? Yours in an election. So here's the process. You identify men you think are qualified for the office. These men are trained in detail for their respective offices. They are examined by the elders and then they're set before you for election. But if you think, you know, that guy's really popular and I like him and I want to nominate him for office, that is not the right reason. I think too many people have been put in office because they were successful businessmen, brilliant educators, rock star, or whatever. Those are the wrong reasons to nominate men for this office. It is much more like the Oscars. Did he just say that? Yes. What are the Oscars? On the basis of a performance, they get nominated. In other words, in the case of the office of deacon, you have 
observed this man serving, showing mercy, giving care to certain aspects of the church life. You've seen it. They get the nomination. In the case of an elder, you've seen, you've experienced, you've witnessed this man using the gift of shepherding and wise ruling in the church. On the basis of that, you nominate them. And I think that's the spirit behind verse 10. Let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. There's a period of testing, examining, and then they're approved. So, beloved, don't nominate someone to office that you don't believe this person has the gifts or the heart for that office. You can put it this way. Their conduct makes the choice clear. CCC. Conduct makes the choice clear. So now you can look on the outline. You know the qualifications for officer in our denomination. They possess a track record using those gifts. They demonstrate the character commensurate with the office. And in the case of a PCA church, they embrace our doctrine and form of government, and they have the time to serve. Don't step into the office if you don't have the time to serve. It takes time. These brothers give a lot of their time. Okay? Third assumption, but it comes in the form of a question. Sorry. Why do we even need church officers? And the answer lies in the most wonderful truth in the world. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Raises what question? How does he love you? Jesus loves you in his two offices of Savior and Lord. You know that Jesus loves you as Savior by sacrificing his life for you on the cross. No greater love has any man than this than he lie down his life for his enemies. <laughs> Jesus loves you in his office as Savior. He loves you in his office as Lord. How? Exercising his lordship in your life. It's one of the greatest things Jesus could do for you. Saving you from yourself, your own propensity for self-lordship. Oh, what an act of love. Jesus serving as your Lord. How? Well, we tend, how would you answer that question? How do we tend to think of Jesus' lordship being exercised in our lives? Through prayer, Bible study, the means of grace in the church, as well as under shepherds. Jesus gives you to be governed in the church because you are precious to him. He cares for you. He wants to shepherd your soul and meet your needs spiritually and physically. He gives you two offices that oversee that happening. Deacon, your material needs as it were. Elder, your spiritual needs, your shepherding needs. So Jesus puts you in a body of people, the church, with whom you share life and bear burdens and pray, and they care for you. This weekend, Janice and I were home. We're struggling with a family issue. Our hearts are heavy. I woke up Saturday morning, came downstairs to fix my coffee, and I noticed my spirit was lifted. I was like, wow, this is, where'd that come from? As the coffee's brewing, I pick up my phone. I got a text from Stan and Eileen Dowd. Mike, we're praying for you to have joy and peace on this Sabbath. We love you. We're praying for you. <laughs> I texted them back. Thank you very much. We need it really right now. And they texted me back and said, we sense the Holy Spirit was telling us to pray for you. Yay. Well, he was. 
And I experienced their prayers even before I knew they were praying. What is my point? I don't get that if I'm not in the church. A couple weeks ago, I emailed one of our deacons and said, I need to ask some advice of you. I've got a question. He said, come for dinner. Enjoy dinner with us and warm fire. And that's, that doesn't happen if you're not in the church. This is the body loving each other. That's why Hebrews 13, 17 writes, Obey your leaders, submit to them. They're keeping watch over your souls. As those who will give an account, let them do this with joy, not with groaning. That would be of no advantage to you. See my point? Jesus loves you tangibly through leaders in the church to meet material needs, deacons, spiritual shepherding needs, elders. Fourth assumption, also in the form of a question. What do church officers need? They need the DNA of the Lord Jesus in their hearts. They need, they need something in them so that when people look at them, they see reflected something of the servant leadership of Jesus, the merciful care of Jesus who fed the hungry, who healed the sick, who set bones right, as it were, and they need to see the other-centered shepherding of Jesus. They, we see in Jesus deacon and elder, perfectly Mixed. It's visible. That should become visible in the life of an elder or a deacon. People should look at our lives as officers and say, do I see the reality of the gospel reflected, not perfectly, but consistently in every sphere of their life, home, church, work? Do you see a man who seems to be constrained by the love of Christ? Do you see a man who knows he is desperate to be filled with the Spirit. Is that what you see? Beloved, why is that important? Because we can seek offices for seedy motives, for bad motives. And if my motive is for the glory of God, not my own, it's because it is a response to the cross. It's a response to what Christ has done for me. So that when someone trusts in the perfection of Jesus, knowing that he's not perfect, he has nothing to prove, he's not getting his worth from his office, he's getting it from Christ. And it makes a difference the way you do your office. If you think your worth comes from that, you'll feel more threatened by criticism if your worth is hung up in the office, not Jesus. This is why Paul forbids a recent convert. Verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. What is it recent converts don't know? How big a sinner they are. <laughs> right? They've only just begun, as the carpenter's saying. They've only just begun their walk of faith. <laughs> he hasn't been humbled yet, growing closer to Jesus. No one gets proud close to Jesus. No one becomes more judgmental, more self-righteous, more demanding, more petty, more impatient, close to Jesus. Just the opposite. Those things are exposed. We're humbled in the presence of Jesus. See, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who know they are big sinners and those who don't know they are big sinners. The recent convert doesn't know yet that they're a big sinner. And so an officer needs to have a grasp on the depth of his depravity or he'll have a small Jesus and likely then treat others with contempt. Why aren't you as good as me? Rather than to be tender 
and passionate and compassionate in the pattern of Jesus. I love this verse from Hebrews 5, verse 2. The priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weaknesses. See the logic? You don't want church officers who don't know they're beset with weaknesses because they won't be dealing gently with you. When you know you're beset with weaknesses, you're not arrogant and condescending. You're desperate for Jesus. And here's the point. It shows. People should be able to say, look at the difference Christ is making in his life despite his sin. Look at the tangible manifestation of grace producing the faith of producing the fruit of faith and repentance. Look at how the word of God has gripped and shaped him, considering otherwise this man would have a propensity towards self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-sufficiency, and self-promotion. That's my tendency. So when you're desperate for Jesus, you will deal kindly with sinners. That's why I have the verse in here from Titus chapter 3. Paul says to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Here's the reason. Verse 3. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what we were, but for grace. And then he says, but the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but because of his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Translated, when you have stood before the judgmental sword of the sword of the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, the sword of judgment, you have stood before it, guilty, and God the Father thrusts that sword into the heart of Jesus so you can live forever, you will be humble. You will be gentle. You will show mercy to frail sinners. That's why Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant repentance to them, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. See, that would be me captive to the devil, but for the grace of God. If you believe that, it translates in the way you deal with other people. Okay, that's the first half of the sermon. Four assumptions, I think, are in all these qualifications. Now we're going to look at the qualifications, but I just want to summarize here. You're looking at someone who, who is on one of two trajectories in their life. What I hope is clear by now is that an officer should be on a trajectory in life that is founded in the cross and going towards the cross. That's the trajectory of his life. Never escapes the cross. The alternative is the trajectory of me, me. It should show up in the way that this person lives and talks and works and deals with others. So what I've done with the qualifications, I've taken both passages, I've put them together, I've grouped them into four categories and just listed the specific ones underneath. As I said a little bit earlier, I'm sure questions will be raised that I'm not going to answer. We can do that another time. First of all, this, the officer is reputable. He's blameless. The word in the Greek literally means you can't take hold of it. I think here's the picture. 
as you begin to accuse this person of extremes, they don't land. Nothing sticks. That's the idea behind blameless. Doesn't mean they're not without sin. And then the areas are teased out there. He's reputable in his marriage, the husband of one wife. Doesn't mean you have to be married to serve as an officer. We have officers that aren't married in our church. And in our denomination, we believe if you have been lawfully divorced in the past and therefore lawfully free to remarry, you ought to be free to serve in this office. The idea, the context is you don't have more than one wife because literally the word is one wife's husband. I'm committed to her. No other women. We're a team in our marriage. Why is this important? Well, what's my primary uh, mission field? What's my primary ministry field? My home. This is why Peter warns husbands in 1 Peter 3, is it verse 7? If you don't live with your wife in a gracious, understanding way, your prayers are hindered. How do you have a shepherd praying for you, and in principle, those prayers are hindered because he isn't treating his wife very nicely? That's serious stuff. He has a reputation in the church above reproach, beyond scandalous, and his reputation in the community. He's well thought of by outsiders. Know that you realize you are the first and perhaps the only contact many people you know will have with Jesus. You're the only contact they have with Jesus. You. So what are you saying about Jesus? We don't need to give skeptics more ammunition for their already innate dislike for Jesus. <laughs> right? The devil wants to disparage and disgrace Jesus, which is the worst thing in the world. Nothing worse than disparaging and disgracing Jesus Christ. Paul says, I don't want that happening through you. Let me give you a personal example here. A few years ago, I was playing golf with my brother on a Saturday. We were on the sixth tee box. It's not germane to the discussion, but I remember exactly where I was when this happened. Saturday. The head pro comes around on a golf court, and he says, Hey, guys, we're having a little tournament tomorrow morning, Sunday. Please join us if you can. And I say this. I have better things to do. I know. My brother looked at me like, what is wrong with you? It came out wrong. <laughs> I, Eddie went on his way. He said, okay. You know, I chased him down. I apologized. He couldn't have been more gracious. But I have to think about what was really going on in my heart. I wonder if I have better things to do is not technically correct. I'm going to be in church not playing golf. That is a better thing. But I wonder if what I was really saying is, I'm better than you. I wonder if it just wasn't self-righteousness. Hmm? Yeah, it was. Let's just tell the truth. But when I'm on the golf course, I want to be a good witness. If I'm going to slam my club in the ground for a bad shot, I'll look around first and make sure nobody's seeing. <laughs> So, I compromised the beauty of Jesus in my life. Eddie couldn't have been more gracious. I, I don't think he, he didn't ever bring it up again. He continued to treat me as a pastor who needed discounts. Great guy, but just that's an illustration. 
All right, moving on. Second quality. Godly. He loves all things that are good. And here are these traits that any of us would want to mark our children, our spouses, our parents, our neighbors. Humble, gentle, hospitable, hospitable, upright, holy, dignified. In other words, I'm not distracted promoting a personal agenda. There's something bigger that runs my life. I'm other-centered in the pattern of Jesus. God-centered. God is worthy to be glorified in my behavior. I really believe that. I'm not perfect, but I believe God is worthy to be glorified in my behavior. And then the third category, he's controlled, master of himself. He doesn't fall into extreme excesses. So my family should be under control. Children should act like they're being discipled. My emotions under control. I'm not a guy looking for a fight. My tongue under control, appetites under control, money and possessions under control. We had a guy in our church years ago nominated for deacon. And this was appropriate. They looked at his giving. I didn't know his giving records. I don't ever want to know what anybody gives except Janice and me because I'd never want to be tempted to partiality. I might treat you better because you give a lot or treat you worse because you didn't. I'm too much of a sinner. I don't, know, want, to, I don't want to know what you give. I think a lot of pastors feel that way. But this man nominated for deacon, the, somebody checked his giving records, and he really wasn't giving anything to the church. So I had to sit down and have breakfast with him and say, hey, you know, what's going on? Deacons are in charge of the money. We, deacons should be exemplary in their giving. Yes. Do you want your deacons to be exemplary in their giving? Yes, you do. You do. Um, they handle the church money. Right? It's, it's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If I can't manage, manage my finances, why should you entrust your finances to me? That's, that's the idea. And I, uh, sorry, I just preempted myself. Verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's arguing from the lesser to the greater. So what, here's what Scripture says. In the essence of my being, what I am at home, it doesn't change at the office. In the essence of your being, what you are when nobody's looking is what you are when people are looking. In the essence of your being. That's why we... So, am I okay here? That's why we so desperately need our beings filled with a power and a love greater than ourselves, namely Jesus. Because your elders and deacons are stewards of what? Christ's riches. You. They're stewards of you. And then finally, skilled. This person, in the case of an officer, he has a firm grasp on the truth. He can refute, exhort. He promotes what is true. Let me, let me close with this, and I'm ready to close. Sort of, sort of looking at this in a meta or macro way. It seems to me, here's the question. What becomes visible? And no matter if you're an officer or not, this is for all of us. I, so I, I want this sermon to be for all of us. What becomes visible when really powerful things in your life are wrapped in the beauty of Jesus? What, what's powerful in your life? What are things you use virtually every day that are inherently powerful? Your words, your money, your emotion, your thoughts, the authority God's given you, and your interaction with other people. What happens when those are wrapped in the beauty of Jesus? It's evident. It becomes clear. There is as a fruit, respect. See, the lives 
that are, and officers' lives should be under the microscope. If you don't want that, don't, don't be an officer. Under the microscope, knowing that we're all sinners, the fruit should be respect. This life is worthy of imitation. This is the guy I want in a trench with me in a battle. This is someone I trust with my kids. This is someone you can call in a crisis. And that's the idea of the reputation Paul is talking about. You and I, no matter office or not, we should consciously know we represent Jesus. We should know we answer to God, not ourselves. We, we, we look and joyfully submit to God's rule, not our own. Our lives are not about ourselves, but about Jesus. So you should be able to look at someone and say, look, it's okay with him that his life is on display. It matters deeply to him how he affects others. So he is careful with his words, his emotions, his money, the quality of his interaction with other people. Okay, last thing. Is there an incentive to live this way? Paul gives an incentive. It's verse 13. Those who serve well as deacons, he might as well say elders. I don't think elders are excluded from this. Those who serve well gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Does that appeal to you? Paul's appealing to this, as they say in the South, an incentive to live this way. I look at that, and I don't know about you, but a great confidence? Man, I would like my life marked with greater confidence that's in Christ. Because I go in directions I don't want to go without the great confidence the gospel gives us in union with Christ. I probably haven't answered all your questions I hope you feel like this was a sufficient challenge to you personally as well as those you're nominating for office. Let's pray. We're grateful, our God, that you want the lives of leaders on public display, and they should be. And we know we're frail, we're weak, we're desperately sinful, we're nothing without Jesus. But we thank you for the measure of grace the gospel makes a crucified Savior constraining the affections of an otherwise destitute person. We're thankful that can make a difference visibly. Give us all a passion for this Jesus. And may he show up in beautiful ways wrapped around our words, our money, our emotions, our relationships, that he be glorified in his name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the table, I'll invite you to take your hymnal.